what are the, the curse word rules? It's fair game. We have the explicit rating. We had nice. Fred No on one, so we couldn't turn oh, back yeah. after that. <laughs> <laughs> this is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. It's only been in the past 10 years that we've seen bourbon go through true innovation, at least in my opinion, true innovation. And that really looks at barrel finishes and blending different distillates. They weren't as common as they are now. And barrel craft spirits, they have been a pioneer in this space. And for this episode, we're joined by Will Shragus. He's the chief product innovation officer for barrel craft spirits. Will has been around since the beginning of Barrel, and he tells how they approach innovating new products and the stories behind some of the most highly acclaimed and in-demand product extensions like Dovetail and Seagrass. Well, enjoy this week's episode, and now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Scott Perlman, a longtime listener who writes me on fredminnick.com. Basically, he wants to know, can you take two different barrels that you feel are subpar and blend them together with the results being very good? You know, that's the thing about uh, bourbon is you can taste the sum of the parts is often better than a part by itself. And I've seen this time and time again. I remember doing an exercise with uh, with Jim Beam. <sighs> I want to say, geez. 12 years ago, and they had us taste like all of the different components to a small batch product that they were coming out with. And I was just like, yeah, that's no good. That's no good. That's no good. This is okay. This is good. And I think there was like five or six different components. And then you combine them at a certain ratio and it was just like, holy cow, this is amazing. You know, it's kind of crazy how you can do that with two barrels or three barrels or four barrels and they completely ameliorate one another. It's, it's fascinating. Now, why is that? Look, let's be honest with you. There's, there's a lot more art to this, this uh, bourbon creation uh, when it comes to blending than there is science. Science is in the space of distillation and fermentation and to an extent aging. But when it comes to blending, that is all art. Like you just don't see a lot of uh, scientific techniques being used there. So it is it is a space of like uh, the blenders are s- so important. Or, you know, technically that used to be a dirty word. So you want to call them the minglers. <laughs> That's a funny one for you. But um, that the, the fact is, is whoever told you that, Scott, was absolutely right. So, but that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you want to be like Scott Perlman, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button and let me know your question. If I like the idea, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Give 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000273.
From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back, everybody. Another fantastic episode of Bourbon Pursuit coming at you today. Kenny and Ryan here today talking with one of the brands that we've probably given a lot of love to over the years, and we've been fans of the brand. They do a lot of great things, and we'll get to talk a little bit more about the inside of really what happens when they're trying to think about innovation and continually thinking of bringing new products to market. It's It's been one of those things that we've had Joe, we've had Trip on the show, but now we're going to bring on somebody else, so it's going to be fun to kind of dive into this. What do you think, Ryan? Yeah, they got tired of talking to us. So they're like, <laughs> uh, send somebody else in. But yeah, you say the word innovation and it's like, yeah, barrels. I mean, that's their whole ethos. It seems like around the the whole organization. It's gosh, you know, we've been in there and there's like barrels from all kinds of places. There's so many interesting like blends and barrels and finishes and this and that. And it's like, holy cow, how do they keep this all organized and like figure out which path they're going to go. It's a incredible thing what they've done and the, you know, success they've had is a testament to Joe Tripp and our, our guests as well. It's just, they, they do a fantastic job of pushing the boundaries of what can be done in the, you know, whiskey and spirit space. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to, we love barrel and a lot of people do as well. So always excited to talk about barrel. Yeah. We'll talk about that. You know, they, they got a lot of awards. You talked about carving their path. One thing that they can't do, carve a path anymore is for the forklifts inside of their their warehouse anymore that's what it's <laughs> tight it's squeeze like, it's like austin powers in there they're trying to back it up move it move it a little bit here move it here and then move it something else but i do know that they've they've kind of secured some new land and working on a, a new addition there as well so their their footprint's growing so it's really cool to see that so today on the show we have will shrages he is the chief product innovation officer for barrel craft spirits so will welcome to the show thank you so much for having me i've uh Waited my entire adult life to say this, but uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. I don't think I've ever been able to say that on Nailed air it. anywhere before. <laughs> um, I'm so glad to be here. When you guys reached out about having us on the show again, I had always sort of wanted to come on with Joe, and it never worked out. And so he was very kind to let me come and talk about some of the stuff we're working on and the work I've done with him. It seems like both a lifetime and also only a few months, but I've I've been working with Joe for... A little over seven years now on Barrel and on Stellum and uh, excited to answer any questions you have and talk about what's new with us. How much did he prep you? Is he like <laughs> drilling you like 
practicing like this is what you can can't say will you're actually to be totally honest not so much with you guys because kenny i know you and joe go way back as well but joe is still so involved in so many if not every part of the business that we actually do a lot more prepping joe than he does prepping us for things like this (laughs) because uh usually there's someone who is concentrating specifically on a project and then they really want joe's input or joe to help with with part of it and you have to like bring him up to speed on the work that you've been doing for a long time. I think one of the things that's been so wonderful about the way that Barrel has grown is that Joe is so good at identifying people that he wants to bring in to the vision and then like giving them space to do their thing. And ultimately it all falls under, he is the gatekeeper of anything that gets the brand stamp of approval, but he has allowed us to kind of each in our own way help with the innovation with our own perspective because he does like give people space and tell them to figure it out and come back when it's figured out, uh, which is, it's really cool way of doing work. And there's people that are so different working in the company. I mean, you guys have met trip. I think trip and I are about as different as two white men in America can be, (laughs) (laughs) which in the grand scheme of people is not that different, but, uh, he's wearing car hearts and, uh, you know, big old mud boots and you're wearing a nice cardigan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but you know, we both, come to whiskey from very different places. I worked for auction houses and in the wine industry and then sort of fell in love with distilling and trip came from chemical engineering. And so when we're talking about innovation and we're talking about what's next in the whiskey industry or making the most of the stocks that are available to us or that we've been laying down, Joe is really good at hearing all of it and then sort of bringing it together. But a lot of it, yeah, is us being like, okay, this is the thing that I've been thinking about, the thing that I've been working on, or this is the podcast we're about to go on, or this is the press release we're writing right now and having prepping Joe a little bit more than, than he preps us at this point. So talk about some of the, the early days, because we had mentioned before we started recording here that you were employee number one after Joe coming into this. So talk about the early days. What was it like to establish the brand, figuring out what the heck are we going to do? Just kind of talk about that, those early days. For transparency's sake, there's sort of three people that are employee number one. Trip and Joe worked together before I worked with Joe, but Trip was still a consultant when I became a full-time employee. So I was uh, W2 number one. And Joe's daughter, Katie, who does so, has always done so much work in the design of Barrel, the sort of visual design, she's in the system as employee number one. So she likes to rub it in my face that she's employee number one, even if I was paid on the books before she was. And so it was really sort of the four of us. And then Janet, Joe's wife has worked with the company for a long time. And there's a couple other people that came on pretty early, but there's certain things that haven't changed at all in the way that we view specific tasks. And then there's realities of growing a brand, both from a production side, from a blending side, from a creativity side, from a design side, from a lead time side that we've had to learn on the fly because even though everyone who works in management for the company came with some knowledge of doing something before. For me, it was like distribution management. None of us worked for a cask strength only $55 plus 48 state, six country company before this. And so we've, I hope, gotten good at it, but uh, some things have changed a lot. Some things haven't changed that much. And, And the thing that I think keeps the brand moving forward in such a ideal way is there's these two, we call them on the sales team, pillars of the brand. And the first is we do everything at cask strength, which creates a ton of logistics and compliance 
situations because the proofs change all the time. Barrels aren't the same proof as much as you want them to be. Um, and the second thing is that early on, Joe identified that he wanted to have a company that was focused on making the best thing it could at any moment without worrying about making the same thing all the time. That ultimately, when you think about brand identity and having a like spiritual home for the projects you're working on, you can't have the target be the best and the same at the same time. They're antithetical to one another. And when we're talking about innovation and we're talking about how to present our whiskeys, that piece guides us quite a bit because it is really hard to do that without acknowledging differences, which is not the old-fashioned playbook for a whiskey brand. Whiskey brands like to not acknowledge it. Johnny Walker Black, you know, quote-unquote, hasn't changed forever long. But if you taste Johnny Walker Black from every year, every three years, or every five years, it certainly has changed. Not to knock on Johnny Walker Black. I like it, but it's a bit of a drift rather than a like specific change. And with us, our, our changes are very specific. And so I think about some moments that are really interesting to me from an innovation side. We used to have this line, the barrel whiskey batches. So barrel bourbon batch one through 31 or 32 soon is kind of the backbone of our company. We started as a bourbon company, but a couple years in, we started making these blends of American whiskey as well. And the first one was declassified into whiskey from bourbon because of used cooperage. There was just whiskey from Indiana from a distillery we all know the name of, but I'm going to be particularly careful to not say it right now, though I usually do, <laughs> that had gone into used barrels and and it was blended into some bourbon, but it was mostly whiskey and used barrels. And so we declassified obviously from bourbon to whiskey. But the second batch of whiskey was when we initially decided, let's do a sherry finish on an American whiskey, even though at that time, the term American whiskey was a little bit of a third rail. And so we had this year, I think it was 2016, where we were one of, if not the first, cask strength sherry finished American whiskey to sort of acknowledge that. No, G no grain neutral, like here's a taking cask strength whiskey from America that's declassified, putting it in sherry butts. We also were that year the first company, as far as I know, to acknowledge more than one state of distillation on, the, on a back label. And both of those were us making the best thing we could make at the time and then worrying about how to deal with it from a compliance standpoint afterwards. Compliance comes second to how it works. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. at that point we were in, I think about 13 states and the company was growing, but we still could wrap our like hands and minds around figuring projects out while they were going. We didn't have to be as far ahead of things. You fast forward a couple years and we're at whiskey batch five, which was the last of the whiskey batches. And there's several different finishes blended together. There is Niagara Escarpment, Pinot Noir, and I believe it was Ruby Port, and the, or Late Bottle Vintage Port. There's like a couple different finishes in Whiskey Batch 5, and we put it out, and it's really successful. And then we sort of get told behind the scenes that because it was different states of distillation finished separately, we crossed two straight whiskey boundaries at the same time. Either one of them would have been fine, but it, but because we did it at the same time, we had to figure out how to, how to label it differently. So we had this whiskey project we had been working on for like more than a year at that point, which was a collaboration with Dunn Vineyards in Napa Valley, which is a whole different story of innovation, like sitting with Mike Dunn and having him say, I fucking love whiskey. Like, sure, let's do it. <laughs> Bring it on. 
And then also bourbon finished in late bottle vintage port and bourbon finished in blackstrap molasses rum. And it was supposed to be whiskey six. And it was supposed to be like the whiskey batch coming out party of like, this is a bigger project. This is like producer specific on the finish. This were three different projects. We were built not as like whiskeys themselves, but as ingredients. And so that was really the moment that we started looking at blending to be out of balance, to then go back into balance with other ingredients. And we got a completely unexpected, can't do what you were planning to do, Whiskey Batch 6. But at that point, we still expected to be this one-time release. And so after months of the whiskey being in Shiner bottles without labels, Joe called me and said, the whiskey's called Dovetail. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he was like, yeah. And there's a couple different stories. And like, to be totally honest, I don't remember the exact story, but because so many people in our company have gotten it wrong so many times that now none of us can remember which the exact story was, but it was Joe talking about woodworking with someone and they talked about the dovetail joint and how it like is so powerful and comes together. And Joe loved the word and it was all of these projects we're working on coming together. And so we went into looking at how to design a label that said barrel dovetail instead of barrel whiskey, which is the first time we had done that kind of thing too. All with this eye on like, what's the best thing we can make right now? Not worrying about having to make it again, because that was the like spiritual guide of the company. And I, I know this, I'm getting pretty verbose with this story. My point is the next step was dovetail sold out in two weeks. And so then we had this innovation complication of, well, we're a whiskey company, we need to make more dovetail. And we had to think of how do you create something that's the best every time without being the same while holding the identity of it. And so we decided we're going to make these three ingredients separately to be the best ingredient they can at all moments. And each time we blend dovetail, we will blend dovetail to be the best that dovetail can be at that moment, knowing that it might be a little bit different than it was the time before, which is how we created what we now call the evergreen series, which is blends of different finishes together that are the, the, the concept of the whiskey is the same every time, but it still allows us within that syntax to make it as good as we can possibly make it, which allows us to work the way that we want to work. And so to say, like, I guess, go back to your question about like the early days with Barrel, I look at Dovetail now and it is a marker for how we want to do work. Dovetail was the reason that Armida existed and Dovetail and Armida were the reason that Seagrass existed and Seagrass is our top selling item right now. The reason Seagrass 16 exists is because of Seagrass existing and also because of Grey Label Bourbon existing. They all sort of built on each other, but it actually came back to this one really cool, really nerdy whiskey project that got derailed over and over again until it became Dovetail and then was so successful that we had to figure out how to create the basis for now the focus of what we do. Yeah, you're almost like victim of your own success. Like You're like, oh, that really worked, but we were trying to create that one thing the one time the best we could. And we can't, it's going to be really hard to create that one thing, the best time, you know, just becoming, as people may or may not know, you know, barrels in the sort sourcing a lot of these products in barrels. And it's very difficult to acquire the same stocks always. But you guys have seemed to like, like you said, put some consistency in there, but not consistent to consistent, but not consistent. Which way you're leaning here, Ryan? Well, <laughs> it seems like though, you know, you're not. Somebody might just say like, well, you're just throwing whatever you can together to make a product, but it does seem like you have some like guardrails or something, you know, like, like you said, like the whiskey consistently going in and then we can play on the finishes and whatnot to, to make it unique. And yeah, when you look at the batches of bourbon versus what we're calling evergreens or dovetail or meat of seagrass, the big difference is each batch is its own concept. 
in terms of how we're blending it. There's sets of barrels that we want to highlight, or there's combinations or tension between barrels that we want to highlight. And even though we learn lessons and we have vattings of things that we use as ingredients in different places, it lives as itself in, as a blending concept. Because Dovetail Armida and Seagrass are all blends of different finishes produced separately, we use the step of making each ingredient to not blend to be exactly the same, but we're able to build things that do what we want them to do in the final blend. And so we have that extra step of creating the proof might change on seagrass, but the flavor profile doesn't really change on seagrass. It's that in order to nail the flavor profile blind, we don't care about the proof. Um, and then we put whatever proof is on the bottle for that vatting. So I almost get a little anxiety when I hear this only because I think of back-end operations. I think of UPC code sprawl. Mm -hmm. So talk about that a little bit. I think that's probably one of the things that most people don't realize about this business is everything that you do differently, every barrel batch, every American whiskey batch, every one of these, usually they have a different UPC code. And that's a whole other process of what it takes to get labels created, what it takes for registering them. When you started figuring out like what's the mission of what barrel is going to be, was that sort of an afterthought and said, oh, crap, we got to take care of all this stuff now? Or was it just something that said, OK, yeah, this is something we're going to plan for. And it's just going to be part of the process. I mean, UPCs are a great example of a thing that you don't think about in advance until they cause a problem. And then you have to start thinking about UPC sprawl. When I started with the company and also, so batches, I started with the company on batch four of bourbon was when I became a full-time employee. Batches one through seven have the same UPC code. The reason for that was it was a very easy in and out. One finishes, we ship the next one. What happened with batches five and six was those were blended from the same initial set of barrels, but they were split between low Rick and high Rick. And so we made two very different blends out of what on paper was kind of the same ingredient. And we pitched it that way. The story of those batches was describing how low Rick and high Rick aging. I don't care if it's the same entry proof. I don't care if it's the same mash bill. I don't care if it was the same distillation season. It's going to taste really different. And people couldn't tell the difference with a gun, with a scanning gun, it was the first time that stores and distributors really wanted to carry more than one of the batches at the same time and view them as different things. Um, and that was a change in the sort of viewing of batch, almost like when you have fine wine versus semi-commodity wine, where no one cares about the vintage and semi-commodity wine to the point where like Kim Crawford went non-vintage a couple years ago, no one really noticed. But with Burgundy, people sure as shit care about the vintage. And you see a lot of stores and a lot of restaurants and a lot of whoever it is having the same thing from different vintages next to each other because people care. And so we learned from that situation that it wasn't that we should have been having different UPCs on every batch to start. It's that the way the company was perceived and the way we were doing our work changed and we had to pivot the way that we were labeling so that a large store could keep inventory of two different batches at the same time. So that when we registered with a control state, if the control state wanted us to have the, each batch register differently, or frankly, if the control state would allow us to have each batch register differently, they would be able to tell the difference with different UPCs. To this day, if you go to North Carolina and you order barrel bourbon custom, like a special order from a store, you're going to get whatever batch is in stock, even though North Carolina is an amazing market for us. If you go to Michigan, each batch is li listed separately, and that's not our choice. That's just the way that the state wanted to deal with us. So 
Since then, every batch of bourbon has had a different UPC, with things like Dovetail Armida Seagrass, with things like the Single Barrel Program. The different UPCs would mean people would think things are different when they're not really that different, and so we use the same UPC on them. So every single barrel of bourbon in the barrel universe has the same UPC, although every single barrel of rye has the same UPC, but a different UPC. Same thing with private release whiskey, private release bourbon. We decided to cluster those UPCs. And on a case-by-case basis, we sometimes will have to get artwork to print a UPC so that one specific retailer can create their own UPC on the back of something. But it is definitely, it's a conversation that it, it's an interesting puzzle because every situation needs a different answer. And our job is to either create the best standard so that we have the fewest fixes to make in the market or the easiest base so that the fixes in the market are easiest to make. And then just react as we can to what's needed from us. And as we grow, those realities change quite a bit. That makes sense. Besides UPCs and all that, I'm I'm still lost with UPCs and how that all works. <laughs> I, I uh, take care of that for you guys. <laughs> yeah. so you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. So my eyes just glossed over. But talk about other, you know, challenges of, you know, your all's business model, you know, with you're trying to create what you can, but not the same thing, but the best you can at the time. What mm-hmm. what are some other challenges that you said you came from the distribution side of, of things? I'm sure like you said, you're used to everybody else ninety percent you know, get gets a flagship offering and then you might do single barrel or one or two things off of that. But your all's core focus is doing something unique every single time. Talk about the challenges of that to people understand what really goes into that, that it's not just sourcing whiskey, throwing it in a blend and yep, here you go. Yeah. So I think the biggest challenge for us, and I feel like this is going to sound like I'm just trying to gain fans, but the the, the biggest challenge for us has been getting people to understand that we are a quality first company, not a glitz first company. That when when we talk about the brand of Barrel Craft Spirits, the brand identity is we want to prove to you that this is the best 75, 79, 84, 99 dollar bottle of whiskey on the shelf. There is not a here's the people that we named it after from the 1880s. There's no this is our shiny distillery depicted on the back of the bottle. It is, we are blenders of whiskey. We are, you know, I guess legally you'd call us rectifiers of whiskey. We're going to do everything we can from the sourcing, from the finishing, from the polishing, whatever it is side to bring you what we think is the best product and getting people to, to believe us that that is our core intention has been the biggest challenge. I actually like spending, I spend 200, 250 days on the road when it's not a pandemic, selling whiskey and talking about whiskey. And when I can get someone to taste it, people really like our product. The challenge is when you're working in 48 states and you're working through a complicated distribution network and every sample is expensive and every batch is limited and each batch is a different thing. How do you get 50% more people to taste it every year? How do you get 100% more people to taste it every year? And how do you make sure that for the people who care about the difference between batch 29 and batch 30, that information is really easy for them to find and to digest. And for the people that just want to know if it's good bourbon or not, they just get barrel bourbon. The nuance of figuring that out is really unique to barrel. And what has been challenging, but also I think the most rewarding part of the job, besides maybe the like working with Joe and Nick and Trip on actually making the whiskey, which is like the dream part of the job, but the most rewarding part of the job from a business standpoint has been working with the sales team and working with our distribution team on figuring out how to do that because no one ever did it the way that we did it. 
there's no one to follow for us. And so we manage distributors and markets really differently. We train our sales team really differently than most people do. We do like once a month or so product training on categories that are not whiskey with the sales team. Because if we're going to talk about late bottled vintage port, we need everyone on our sales team to know what late bottled vintage port is when they are talking about that finish in Dovetail. And so we did a port training. Um, and we sourced a ton of really good port and we sent it out to everyone and we went on Zoom and we talked about different categories of port so that our team could engage with people about, we care that it's late bottle vintage port and not ruby port and not tawny port and not white port and all those things for that one time a week or one time a month where talking about dovetail really resonates with someone who likes port finishes. And that has really been the challenge. And with each growth level of the company, there's new challenges. So from a production side, Seagrass completely blew up in the last six months. Yeah, tell me about it. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> that, thing, that thing went bonkers out of nowhere, huh? Fred gave us a really wonderful review, but it was, no, it it was, was before happening that. before Fred. You know, <laughs> yeah. It really started with Kentucky Bourbon Festival when Nick put together the Seagrass Slushy, and it was like line across, around the block for the Seagrass Slushy. And that day or like that week, we got purchase orders from distributors that were bigger than we had ever gotten before because there were people from the industry at that thing tasting seagrass. But how to scale seagrass from a blending standpoint? So we don't have to just scale the blend. We have to scale all the finishes behind it. So we had to draw down our finishing stock at that point, and we had to enter more. We had to change the way that we're tasting barrels that are in finishes because we have to make sure to be pulling the right percentage of was it in the finish for one month or two months or six months or for a year to create the same ingredient. And then from a distribution management side, we have to make sure that our distributors are putting in enough orders to fill the demand that they haven't seen before. So as a producer of alcohol or an importer of alcohol, a supplier in America, you generally do a meeting with each one of your distributors in December or January or February to talk about recapping the year before and planning for the next year. If you have, if your fiscal is different, you might do it a different time of year, but most people do it at the beginning of the year. And we go into these meetings and say, we're going to grow a hundred percent every year. <laughs> and the first four years with a distributor, you get laughed out of the room. I'd say so. It's probably, it's a bold move. And when you've grown a hundred percent four years in a row, you start having distributors who say, okay, do you have enough stock to support it? And that's the point, like the, the sea change of that question is you're on board with your distribution team, but then you need to make sure throughout the year, if they sold 80 cases in February of 2021, you can't order 80 cases in January because you can't grow hundred percent if you only have enough stock to do what you did the year before. And no algorithm from a computer is going to tell them to overorder. So suddenly there's like arguments about stock that start happening, which you should never have an argument about stock if you have stock and your distributor wants to sell more things, but it just happens because of the math of it doesn't make sense if you're not growing 100% every year. Plus, it takes time for whiskey to age and pull out everything from a finish and be able to make those blends as well. Right. And so for us, it's, yeah, we have to look backwards to ourselves of like, do we have to control this? Can can we let this ball roll down the hill as fast as it goes? And we can't with batches. So with a batch of bourbon, if it wins an award and we made 5,000 six-packs, we're just going to spread it as far as we can. We're going to make sure that our, you know, longtime customers, the people that we think are important, the whiskey bars of the world are able to get a bottle. When it's seagrass, we have to look at how far down can we draw the stocks to keep it con consistent? And also, what can we do right now to make the stocks orders of magnitude bigger in two and four and six and 12 months? And that even goes down to like warehouse space. That goes down to 
different finishing casks that goes down to when we are vatting before we redistribute it in casks, do we have to vat more? We've added blending tanks every year, but then also finding ways to connect blending tanks so we can make something that's actually made in two tanks at the same time and circulated. There's all of these like each growth gives us these new puzzles. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and like with finishing, I mean, gosh, I, I we're kind of playing around with some finishes now and it's like, gosh, you have to taste the damn things like almost every day because like it can turn it can turn like in the, you know, just a day or two and it's like, all right, it's ready now. And then I've had some where you just leave them and you're like, well, shit, that just went too far. Yeah. Um, and you learn lessons of like leaving things in never before used oak, either as a secondary maturation. We've done extensive toasted oak and toasted and charred and partially toasted for years now. And we used the first bit of it in the gold label bourbon last year, but there's a major project we're working on that has sort of new oak as secondary maturation in it. And doesn't matter how old the whiskey was when it went into the toasted oak, it's going to taste like young whiskey for a little while because of the young wood. But you also run the risk of it getting over oaked so quickly in that. And so finding the right time to pull, that's why when you look at toasted oak projects around the country, some are amazing and some are really not good. And it's because of wood management, planning, testing, and like in the moment decisions about getting things out of wood when you need to. That makes sense. I guess I want to roll back a little bit to talk about some of your your innovation process when we start looking at it. Is it an idea of what do we have in stock? What's the pipeline of what's available from our people we're buying from on the open market? What do we think is going to work well together? Kind of talk about what is it to just figure out, do we take some from a little bit over here? We take this finish, do this. Is it just a science lab experiment for the day? Kind of talk about just where the process really begins. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. I 
want to roll back a little bit to talk about some of your, your innovation process when we start looking at it. Is it an idea of what do we have in stock? What's the pipeline of what's available from our people we're buying from on the open market? What do we think is going to work well together? Kind of talk about what is it to just figure out, do we take some from a little bit over here? We take this finish, do this. Is it just a science lab experiment for the day? Kind of talk about just where the process really begins. Yeah. And I think the the biggest misnomer is that there's a specific written out process for everything. Really what it is, is it, it's constant processes and then pulling from those processes for the projects that you need to do. So ideally for us, and we're pretty much there now for the past couple years, we don't ever want to be relying on availability in the barrel market for something that we've created conceptually in our heads. We want to create things conceptually out of the things that we already own and are aware of what the yields are going to be like. And we've potentially worked with the liquid in another place before, because the worst thing is to want to do something and not be able to do it, to know it's going to work and have it not work in practicality. And so there's the sourcing side, which is how do we build the spice cabinet so that when we go to it, it's extensive enough that we can do cool things. And then there's the keeping track of what you have side to know what is the reality of what you can use and what you can't use. And then there's the fun experimenting side of just constantly putting things together. So I think about batch 31, which is the sort of current release of barrel bourbon right now. And batch 31, the majority of it, the vast majority of it is these two sets of barrels. One is this like older 99% corn Indiana, where uh, we've used a good amount of 99% corn. We used it; in, It's an integral, though not complete ingredient in the Stellum bourbon blend. And then we've used it in a couple other blends. And it's this delicious but very one-dimensional style of bourbon it doesn't bring the complexity as a full ingredient as a full whiskey that a lot of other mash bills might but it's really singular in the notes it gives you and it also has gems of barrels in it partially because it's it's often very well-made whiskey and so it lets barrels shine really well like specific wood barrels but we just had been playing around with different vattings of that for so long and finally at one point nick and trip matched it about 50-50 with a weeded bourbon blend we had. It was a, a multi-state blend of weeded bourbon that we had made the tank. We had used it mostly in private release bourbon, um, but we had some and it just married really well. And suddenly the the base of that project was, okay, we're going to start with 50-50 of these two and we're going to test 60-40 on either side. We're going to test 65-35 on either side. And then we're also going to test 50-50 with small additions of other things that we have vatted already, things that we know we have a, a working sample of what the actual, if we use 10 or 20 barrels together, will taste like. And that, even though that's still not a one-dimensional decision, we still have to decide, is the base 50-50, is the base 60-40, so on and so forth. And then we at least can work in, working in two dimensions is a lot easier of like, what are the ingredients, if you know the ingredients and you can play around with the different dim dimensions of it, is much easier than trying different ingredients at the same time, unless you have a set base. When you have a set base, you can try different ingredients at the same time. And that became batch 31. Uh, it wasn't just dicking around in the lab, mixing stuff together. It was working with projects we had worked with, with things that we knew about, but it actually was a like open-ended, try different things, aha moment that led to the like, now we have a very specific directive. We're going to base it on these two bourbons, and then we're going to use some variety of these things that are already in the facility and tanked to be the 
sort of complementary pieces of it. Yeah, you, you kind of make a good point when you start talking about these different batches of barrel bourbon using the different kinds of mash bills and hopefully blending them together. And it really, really dovetails to what the conversation you're talking about earlier of like, how do we continually educate the market on every single new release and making sure that we know that our customers are informed of everything that we're coming out with, because that is, it's going to be as it's tough as a continual education process to make sure that people are always aware, they're always knowing what's the latest thing to come out. And if you're going to have two or three different batches of barrel bourbon or dovetail or whatever that's on your bar, you've got to be able to know what are the succinct differences in them. And I think that's uh, it, it probably is one of the most challenging things I would think that's in your, in your realm is just that constant education factor of making sure that you're in front of the consumer, that they know what's going into it. You know, you do a fantastic job at press releases, but it, I could understand that you're only going to touch part of the market when you're talking to bourbon nerds like us, but there's this whole other part of the bourbon market that still has to be tapped with the the average everyday consumer. Yeah. And I think what's been an uh, interesting exercise in the past year or two is there's a laundry list of questions that people have been trained to ask about bourbon when it's presented to them. What's the mash bill? Frankly, where was it distilled? What's the char number on the barrels? What proof is this at? And what we have had to learn to be a little bit stricter about and a little firmer about than we used to be is we're not trying to hold anything back about our bourbons, but we want to make sure that we're sharing with people the things that we think are important about them. And there are batches and there are ingredients that it does not matter what the mash bill is because it doesn't taste like that mash bill. It tastes like what it is. And when people ask what's the char number, when there's four ingredients to a batch, but two of them were other blends that we had made that each had their own two to seven ingredients, and all of those were different mash bills or different char levels, or we didn't know the char level of one of them, or some of them came out at 102 proof and some of them came out at 129 proof. So if you're trying to average it, do you adjust percentage of char level by percent like and, <laughs> and two point eight seven six three pi? Yeah, and if like you do that. that math, you have to somehow factor in temperature too, because the volume of different things at different alcohol by volume changes at different. It doesn't make any sense, and so it's not that there isn't an answer; it's that it it doesn't speak to the identity of that bourbon at all. And being a little bit more streamlined about. It's not, this isn't all we're going to tell you. If you really want to know, you can email us and we'll try to give you as much information as we can, but we're going to give you the things that make this what it are or what it is informationally. That has been a new exercise for us because there's many, many different levels of bourbon drinker and more and more of those levels are interested in what we're doing right now. And frankly, what we're doing is more complicated and more nuanced and more interesting than it was two or three or five years ago. Um, and so there, there aren't answers the way there used to be. I totally agree with you. I think, you know, you guys were pioneers in the, the, you know, with cash strength and the blending side, it's the most interesting and fascinating side of that American whiskey has yet, you know, we're starting to tap into that, but it's still like a, a big uh, challenge to educate consumers because they're so used to like age stated one mash bill, one distillate from this Rick, that tier. Right. And know. also I don't want to hate on that because <laughs> no, 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 the totally. fact that people ask that question has changed in the, you know, I was a, a intern distiller in 2011 at Kings County distillery. And very few people asked me about my mash bill. 
not, I mean, like Colin and Smashville, like the Mashable I was working on, very few people asked me about it. And then when I worked at Zaki's in New York, we made a point of talking about Mashbills when we were talking about bourbons, because we, at, at the time, wanted to talk about the different Mashbills at Jim Beam and things like that. And so the, the fact that, peop, the, that people ask is great. I think it's like it was the, the transparency zealots of the world that brought it into the, the like vocabulary of this is what I like about bourbon. The problem is like the rabbit hole is deep. And so you get to the point where it's, there are whiskeys that what's important about them is their mash bill. And then there's whiskeys that what's important about them is not their mash bill. Um, and it's that of like every stat that you can put on a whiskey, even to the point of proof, there's whiskeys that what's important about them is their proof. And there's whiskeys that what's important about them is that they're at cast strength or not at cast strength. Uh, when we do single barrel tastings, we try really hard to do them blind to proof because it is crazy how wrong we and people other people are about which is the hotter barrel all the time or i'm sure you've seen this this obsession with rye barrels that are over 140 proof well anything over hazmat people think it's the most it's god's gift to earth or something and it's cool like admittedly it's cool it's hazmat's a cool word but if you taste them blind, do you really like the 141 over the 137? However, we could sell the 141 in our sleep. People don't even want to taste it. And so it, it, proof is like, to me, like the last level of like, yeah, we're always going to put proof on the bottle. Yeah, we're always going to talk about it. It's always cast strength. But I, I don't even really think about proof when I'm tasting it now. It's about like flavor. Right. How can American whiskey move beyond, you know, blend being a dirty word and be more respected you know like scotch or japanese whiskey is because it's you know like you said it's much more difficult and challenging to blend all these different components together to get a a cohesive you know unit that is appealing to palates across you know the spectrum i wish i had an answer to that specifically (laughs) but i think what is come on will you're supposed to solve this i know no i think what's important to like contextualize that is Sorry to suck up here, but like you guys are one of the most influential podcasts in the American whiskey, if not whiskey world. And well, thank you. you just asked Ryan, that. Ryan does most of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Ryan, you asked me that question on air. So that is how the idea of blending as a, a dirty word gets eliminated because the people who really care about it are not thinking of it that way. And they're talking about how it's not that way. Similarly, the American whiskey world is really behind the Scotch world and the Japanese wor- whiskey world in certain ways, but the American whiskey market is way ahead of those whiskeys. If you look at the Japanese whiskey and the Scotch, they care about the American market more than their own market, at least from a sales perspective. And there is a whole lot of shady blending going on in those countries too. And the American market is slowly going to learn about it. And so I think rather than talking about blending as good versus bad in America, what I think we need to start to do is talk about good blending versus bad blending globally. And the the people in Scotland that are doing really amazing blended whiskey projects and thinking about whether it's in the single malt realm of blending different finishes or blending different ages for consistency, or if it's in the no longer existent vatted malt realm or blended whiskey realm. When you think about Japanese whiskey, is it being distilled in Japan or is it being blended in Japan? And does it matter? But is that part of the conversation? That will bring up the exciting blending projects in America too. You brought up a, a really good thing about kind of getting the the bad connotation of shady blending and stuff like that. Because even that has started to creep its head, even in the American whiskey category of recharging barrels, throwing in a 
you know, gallon or two or three of port into something to quote unquote re-wet it, but you don't actually dump it back out. How do you all stay away from that sort of stigma and how are you trying to keep being authentic in that category as well? So I think part of it is I, reconditioning barrels is a great example of we absolutely recondition barrels. We don't do it all the time. We make sure that we're doing real tests with what would be considered a thing. But uh, at the volume we're doing, we need to make consistent ingredients. And the best way to do that is to take neutral French oak and condition it with cognac, for instance, rather than bringing in new, potentially very different cognac barrels each time. And so it's balancing doing what will make the best product or the best whiskey with doing what is true, or at least basing it on what is true to the identity. I think that when I say shady blending, what, what I'm more talking about is not, is, is just buzzwording is talking about is putting the thing on the label that people will buy and not having the whiskey live up to the thing on the label. Similarly is like flavoring whiskey, but finding ways to make it seem like it's not flavored. Not that I have a problem with flavored whiskey. I just wish that we had a way of showing what is a hundred percent whiskey and what isn't a hundred percent whiskey. Yeah, no, I get it. And I think you, you also bring up a good point. I didn't really think about this of buying neutral Oak and then basically infusing it with whatever kind of spirit that you're wanting to be able to impart on the whiskey instead of relying on buying a bunch of different cognac casks and hoping for the best because you have no idea what they're going to be like when they arrive. Is this something that is you all found? Is this something that you all discovered or was a consultant or just said like, hey, this is a, another new way we can look at continually innovating in this space? So what it actually started with was we have these two beautiful Hungarian oak Olorosa sherry butts, but we used them a couple times and we wanted them to keep imparting sherry. So we bought nice sherry and we reconditioned them. But at the same time, you talk to people in the whiskey world and it's like McAllen owns a sherry producer. They don't own a sherry producer to make sherry. They own a sherry producer to condition oak with sherry for Mac 12 and Mac 18 and components and the other stuff because there's just not enough sherry. And also they want to make sherry the way that tastes good with the whiskey. So they make sherry to be good for conditioning oak rather than necessarily being good sherry. It's funny you say that because I've heard that Diageo, that's why they had George Dickel, you know, was to help support Johnny Walker, you know, with bourbon, ex-bourbon cask and whatnot. So it's interesting you say that McAllen has that as, as well. Right. A lot of these things in America, they're new practices in America, but they're based on the way that spirits were made before. When you look at a lot of the really fine single malt houses, they have a very specific regimen of what type of distillate and what proof it's entered at when it's a virgin cask, when it's a first ex-bourbon, when it's a second ex-bourbon, so on and so forth. And I think about in in our small to medium-sized way, we work with Dunn Vineyards in California, we get these beautiful once-used Cabernet barrels. They use virgin oak. So we have Cabernet finish going into Dovetail, but it's also virgin oak finish because Cabernet isn't a distillate. It doesn't pull hemicellulose the way that a, a distilled spirit will over 12 years. It's one, two, three, four years of fermented of 12, 13% alcohol. And then we're left with X dovetail ingredient French oak, but it was only used once and only for like maybe six months or so because the finish is there. So it's still a pretty live French oak barrel, but it saw Indiana whiskey. Um, so it didn't have a ton of flavor except for that little amount of Cabernet that was in there. And so dovetail uses some second fill 
Dovetail, if you will. By the time we've used it for Dovetail three or four times, which is new for us, Dovetail hasn't been around that long, we then have this like beautiful French oak barrel that saw four different sets of reasonably neutral whiskey for, for six months. That barrel is not imparting barrel flavor anymore, but it is still allowing oxidation and holding liquid extremely well. And it's, it can be conditioned as if it's a neutral barrel. And so like a lot of those barrels go into our private release whiskey program and get, they get conditioned and then we age in them. They're also a tiny bit bigger, which allows us more space on top. So we can put the same amount of liquid in, but we can have more surface area to volume within the barrel, which is helpful. Yeah. Those private releases are pretty good too. I mean, that's all these little micro blends that you all have worked on over what, I don't know, a span of a few years too. Yeah. Um, and those serve as a training ground a lot of, a lot of times for what type of project we want to work on in a bigger way. Um, if something comes out really well in the private release whiskey program, we're going to remake it, but we're also going to start thinking about, is this like a candidate to be one of the finishes in an evergreen that we're developing? Yeah. I guess when you think about even that, is that, is that your level of calculated risk when you're doing these micro blends? If like, it doesn't work out, it's like, Hey, at least we lost a barrel or a half barrel or whatever it is. Is that sort of like the level that you say, like, this is, this is the level of risk that we're willing to assume. Yeah. I think that ideally we would never write off more than a barrel at a time because you write off barrels a lot if they just taste or smell bad, you know, you get, we don't want something going into the barrel world that isn't good whiskey. And so if we're doing a finish, we would love to figure out if it's something we want to do in a large way over many trials before we put, we enter quite a bit of it. And so the private release whiskey program works for that quite a bit. Also the private release bourbon program for different components and how they work together allows us to do many, many different blends of however many different ages together and release the ones that we think are really great and revat the ones that we don't necessarily think are really great. Um, and then if there's ones that really stand out, use them as concepts for trying to figure out what a next batch might be. I'm just curious on those private release barrels, what would, there had to be some like common themes that people picked. Like what was the most common finishes that you all saw in those private? Private release whiskey line, the ones that have finishes, there's two different camps. There's the well-known finishing secondary spirits and or wines that sell really well. So Cognac, PX Sherry, Ruby Port, Armagnac in itself, because the bourbon world has really taken to Armagnac. So Armagnac finished whiskey has gotten very popular recently. And then there's the, we're the only people that do it once, uh, which is much more challenging from a sales perspective, because you don't want to let a excited buyer spend a lot of their money on something that they may not have the consumers that want. So we have a small program that's Ratafia de Champagne finish, which is a, a vin de liqueur, a fortified wine from Champagne. And people in the wine and spirits world love those whiskeys. But someone who walks into a store and is getting a gift for someone and doesn't love whiskey and maybe isn't even a wine person, probably not going to make their way through the phrase Ratafia de Champagne and pick up the $120 bottle of whiskey. Double whammy on that one for the... Yeah, but wait till they try, man. <laughs> yeah, but no matter <laughs> how good it oh, is... Oh, I know. I'm sure. Yeah. We want to make sure those go to the places that they're going to get to the whiskey fans who want them. And so they're really popular in certain contexts because they're unique, but they aren't as popular in this kind of mass market way. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I kind of want to start rounding this out with a few, few kind of last questions here, because, you know, we talk about innovation and sort of your strategy and, and all these little things as well, is that there's a lot of trends that happen 
in the bourbon world. And it seems like the biggest one right now is toasted. Everybody's got to have a toasted release. You know, you all have, you had kind of mentioned earlier, you're kind of playing around with some stuff and, and toasted, but you haven't come out with something that is, this is barrel toasted. Mm-hmm. Is is the reason of that is saying that we don't want to just follow a trend that everybody else is doing? Or is it something that you're you're also kind of working on the back end as well? Without going too into it, because I don't know exactly when it will be released and exactly what shape it will take. But the reason for us not having a specifically toasted oak finish product, um, though there was a, a good amount of, there's about 25% toasted finish in the gold label bourbon, is we've been working on it for a really long time. And we know that it is a category right now that is in danger of just being a buzzword. So it's not going to come from us until we know that it's going to be great. And we've done a lot, a lot, a lot. And it's been two years of experiments with, we don't really call it toasted all the time. We call it virgin oak secondary maturation because some are toasted and some are charred and they're toasted at different levels. We wouldn't put that on a label, but in our heads, that's what we're talking about. So is that VOSF? Yeah. <laughs> um, it'll, it'll most likely say toasted on the label, but in for us, it's uh, the variability of introducing never-before-used oak two barrels to one barrel of distillate. So it's twice as much available wood for the... is a dangerous game to play in in the bourbon world because bourbon already is one of the oakiest spirits in the world. And so... When we do it, first of all, we want it to be incorporated into a project where it's not just putting toasted lipstick on a bourbon pig. <laughs> yeah, you kind of get that. We've we've seen that before, is that if you start off a bad whiskey and put it into a toasted barrel, it's not as bad. It can polish a turd. Right. At the same time, just like uh, mediocre distillate pulled out of the barrel too fast is really bad, or good distillate pulled out of the barrel too fast Good whiskey put into a barrel and then pulled out too fast can be bad, and good whiskey put into a barrel to the point where it gets so oaky that it's not palatable anymore can be bad. And both of those things could potentially be good ingredients alongside other stuff, but uh, we are working on it. There will be a very cool toasted oak and or toasted oak component whiskey coming out from us, but when we do it, we know that this is it's exactly the type of project that the, that the microscope or the spotlight is on us for. And so not only do we need to make sure that it is really, really good, we also need to make sure that in the event that it's really good, we can continue to make it and or have enough so as to have it be a seagrass and not a situation where everyone's asking for something that we can't give them. I got I got two more, maybe three more questions here. So the second one is you mentioned kind of had a spotlight on you. And that makes me think of the gold label that was released. And to be honest, it was a $500 bottle. What was the idea of kind of pricing it at, at that point? Do you all see the premiumization happening? And you said, I think that we can create a product that, that sort of hits this dollar mark. We tried to be very careful with the gold label. First of all, there's there's very, very little of it. There were certain states that got like 15 bottles of gold label for the whole state. And the components of it were pieces of the gray label bourbon and other barrels that may have gone into the gray label bourbon, some of which spent two years in toasted oak. Uh, so that was that was a more than two year project we're working on. And we are not trying to and like this is very close to like my belief system, too. We are not trying to tell people that they should spend five hundred dollars on a bottle of bourbon. What we tried to do with the gold label bourbon is, given the very limited stocks in that realm we have, can we make a $500 bottle that will 
make someone who's excited about spending $500 a bottle on bourbon happy they picked our bourbon. And we feel like we did that really well. That if you are already in the mindset of, I want something really fancy and I'm a bourbon drinker, or I want to buy a really fancy gift for a bourbon drinker, there's not a lot in that space in the bourbon world that is available. There's the B-Tax, there's the Pappies of the world, and we can argue back and forth at any moment, like, are they worth the money? But from a branding perspective right now, they are worth the money. People perceive them as worth spending the money on as a gift or for yourself if you want to. But there's a lot of bad noise in the three to $1,200 range in the American whiskey world too. And so our project was, we felt that there was a soft spot of get yourself, get someone else a $500 gift and have it taste fancy and better than the other things that were available to you. And we wanted to live in that world in a very small way. But I don't want anyone to ever be perceived that Barrel is trying to tell them that bourbon needs to be a $500 thing. I love that answer, by the way. That was... Yeah, that was great. That was a, that was a great answer. Some you might, people might think that you worked in corporate marketing at one point. You just know how to <laughs> tap dance around. No, that was actually, that was a fantastic answer. But the, it's a great point because uh, you're right. There's a ton of whiskeys priced in the, that tier and they're just don't live up to the expectation, you know, and I've, I've had the gold label and it's, it's freaking fantastic. And there's not many, you know, that high age estated whiskeys out there in the bourbon world, you know, right now. So it's very limited and we know how expensive those barrels are. I think also what is important, and I know we have to stop soon, but when you get to the price of even ultra premium whiskey, let's call it $70 and on, I think that the American market, and especially for whatever reason, whiskey drinkers and bourbon drinkers like to think of things as hierarchical of something has to be better than other things. And the history of the wine world and of the beer world and of the art world and of the architecture world and the, like the things that people spend money on that are similar to collecting whiskeys or or enjoying whiskeys is that you you pretty early on reach this like what is unique about things is how special they are and the place they hold in the world that they live in and especially at $500 like that's where it is it's like does it do for you what you were excited for it to do for you at the amount that you paid for it thinking of things as better or worse gets really challenging. I don't, they, they all are, they all either, they delivered on their promise or they didn't to me. And I think that's a safer mindset to be in when you collect whiskeys. It's like, is this the exciting thing that I paid for or not the exciting thing that I paid for? And trying to rank it gets complicated when it's so collectible. Yeah. And you're always going to have the people out there that says, I get this, I got a better deal with wild turkey 101. You know, you're always right. going to have those kind of people, but that, that almost kind of leads me to the second innovation and the second product line that you all came out with is, which was Stellum is the idea of doing Stellum to kind of bring that price tag down a little bit, have something that's a little bit of a, a lower entry point into, into your all's brands. Is that kind of give the idea and genesis behind Stellum? So and we could do a whole show on Stellum, so uh, I want to keep <laughs> Well, it I'll give you a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Stellum was, you know, it came out in the early summer, late spring of 2021, but it was also something we've been working on for years. And it didn't have a name, and it didn't. we didn't know where it would sit in our portfolio. And Stellum is in some ways its own company, and in some ways it's part of Barrelcraft Spirits. What we were aiming to do with the project before it became Stellum was can we create a flavor profile that exists in the what you expect from bourbon and what you expect from rye world as blenders that we can consistently do the same thing at the same proof and have it be ours and awesome. And that was a, a very, very long project. 
And there were conversations when we finally came to the moment of like, okay, there's these three mash bills from Indiana and this age range from Indiana that we've, we've sourced backwards on. So for so long that we have the ability to make consistent, we have these suppliers, I'm not going to say how many in Kentucky and suppliers in Tennessee that we have sourced backwards to create this blend that not only do we feel like we can make it consistent, but we are able to blend to the Stellum flavor profile blind to proof in different places and then blend those blends that taste the same to the same proof. So that's how we get to the same proof of Stellum all the time that we do flavor first and we do proof second. And what it ultimately came down to was under the barrel flag, it violated what's the best thing we can make without being worried to make it again, which not on purpose, but kind of brings this interview whole circle, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and similarly, we had some ideas about what whiskey could be going forward that violated the barrel doesn't have a brand. Barrel's brand is just being great whiskey um, that we wanted to comment on a little bit with Stellum. And so when we were sort of sitting around the table and talking about it, what came out of this conversation that Joe was leading was that like, no one from our company is a no. No one's a, like, there's no whiskey heritage, but there is a ton of last 5, 10, 15 year whiskey experience now. And the world of whiskey in America is not based on the world of whiskey 30 years ago. It's it's the last 15 years that have sort of made things what they are right now. The premiumization of bourbon, the idea of blending, the idea of being honest with consumers, cask strength, all of that is like pretty new stuff. And so we wanted to create this brand that was that was a little bit brand focused, but it was focused on like 2021 and onward and not what was bourbon before then. Um, and that kind of came together with having it be its own living entity within the company because we are able to say things as Stellum that violate barrels principles while still being something we really believe in. And we're able to look at blending of what's the best, always able to make it $55 bottle of bourbon on the shelf rather than what's the best thing we can do right now, no matter what. And we don't have to, we have, it's like two very different projects for us, even though it's the same people doing the blending. Totally aside by that, from that, uh, the single barrel program in Stellum barrels, single barrels are so carefully picked. It's like specific barrels from specific lots that we feel are, are complete and in balance by themselves. And Stellum's barrels are checked, but the idea was get cask strength single barrels to people who want them easier with Stellum without having, because it, the Stellum single barrel program is, is big. It was launched to be, if you are a store or you're a group and you want a single barrel pick, you don't have to like shake a tree to try to find someone to maybe give you one sample that you have to say yes or no to in one day. And then it shows up and it's a different proof and there's nothing you can do about it. It's like well run and large. And so that too, we couldn't fit that into the barrel world, but it fit really nicely into the Stellum world. Perfect. Well, makes sense. Before we sign off, I'd be remiss not to say what we had talked about before we were recording here that you could drop a little nugget of something that was coming that Joe gave you the the okay for. You want to want to put it out there? Well, I think I, I dropped it already. It's that we've been entering whiskey into toasted oak for the past two years, and okay. uh, in the conversation about the evergreen line, which is a, a back of house word, we're not going to put that on a label. Our intention is to add something next to dovetail seagrass armida that is not a secondary wine or separate spirit finish, but is still uniquely ours and is still a product of different programs that we've worked on being blended together so that it fits into that barrel makes things and then blends them to be greater than the sums of its parts world. 
And I'm, I, we're not confident that it's going to end up like that because we want it to, we're only going to do it if it is up to our standards. But uh, whenever this is released, whether that is out or not, you may or may not have heard it here first that it's something that we're working on. Right. That sounds good. Well, knowing what you all are able to come up with names, I'm sure it's not going to be as generic as French toast. So I can't wait to see what the, uh, what the label is going to say here. Cool. Thanks so much. Yeah. So, well, thank you again for coming on the show. If people want to know more about you, follow you on any socials, learn more about Barrel. How do they do that? Uh, so I would advise them to follow Barrel. I, uh, though I have a Facebook, I mostly keep my life outside of my job on the internet, very different from the job. Not that I actually, I spend a lot, good amount of time on social media, but it's separate. But I do see quite a bit of the Barrel stuff. So if there's questions for me, you can ask Barrel Bourbon on Instagram. You can ask Stellum Spirits on Instagram. Same thing with Facebook. And you can always email us at contact at barrelbourbon.com or contact at stellumspirits.com. And if it's a complicated whiskey question, it gets forwarded to me for an answer. Um, and so you very well might get the answer from me, but it's better. There's people who travel a little bit less and are more organized with making sure that we are good to our fans and friends who see that inbox and they hold me to answering it. So if you email me directly, I might accidentally be rude to you and I would hate that. <laughs> uh, so that would be the best way to follow us, but also the best way to get to me if you ever need, if anyone ever has a question for me. Well, cool. So if you ever have any char questions about which barrel bourbon you need, go ahead and send that to contact. <laughs> he'll, he'll do the math and figure out what the char level is. I'll do my you. best or I'll send you, you some know, weird formula that I want to use. We need lot numbers and char levels. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you again, Will, for coming on the show. Make sure you follow Barrel. As always, this is a, a fantastic way to kind of get an inside look into the innovation as well as their strategy and what they're always doing. I know that it's, it's continually going on. We're always thinking about scaling. These guys are always, they're playing they're playing chess while we're paying, playing checkers, it seems like. So it's always yeah, fun to totally. be able to look at. Yeah, and yeah. thank you all. I mean, y'all have been a huge inspiration and great mentors to us. And we just really appreciate everything y'all have done it goes for the whiskey ways, world sure. to, to try, you know, to change that mindset that blend is not a dirty word it is uh an art and it should be respected and uh well received you know so thank you for all you all do thank you for saying that all right well with that cheers everybody we'll see you next week